0: we are starting a brand new series this weekend coming off of Easter. This series is on the book of Esther, so don't confuse it with Easter. Uh, But Esther is a great Old Testament story. It's it's really, it's a literary masterpiece. And it opens like you would imagine uh, any great tale to open it, basically with its own version of uh, Once Upon a Time. It says, this is what happened. Uh, This is what happened. So here's the deal. Esther is this Wonderful, fantastic, but true story that occurs within some verifiable historical facts that we see in other places as well. Let me give a little bit of background. We know about the kingdom of Israel. We know they were God's people in the Old Testament. In 930 BC, the kingdom was divided into north and south. Um, that's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. There were some a mixture of good and bad kings in the south. The north were like all bad kings. And Assyria took the north in about 722. They came and they conquest. They took over the northern kingdom and took them away. And one of the things that the Assyrians did is they would intermix people. When they took over an area, they would would intermix the people so their culture gets lost. And that's exactly what they did with the northern kingdom. So when you read in the New Testament about this divide between um, Israelites and, and Samaritans, this is Why? Because Samaritans were considered half-breeds, they were mixed with other, with other people and cultures, and they lost track of things. And so that's what has gone on because of the Assyrian takeover and the way that they went about that. The south continued uh, as a kingdom until 597. when Babylon came in and they took Judah. They took the southern kingdom. And uh, Babylon ruled over them for almost 60 years before Persia, the Persian uh, army came in and took out Babylon and very, actually surprisingly, uh, easy uh, Conquest and so that was under Cyrus the Great and that happened in 539 and Immediately Cyrus who was considered by the people he was, he was liked by the people more than most other Emperors and rulers he was considered the father of the people was one of the nicknames that they had for him They liked him because he was generally tolerant of the various cultures and peoples that of the areas that they ruled over and so when they would take a place over this is one way that he gained favor he allowed the Israelites, the, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. He blessed that whole mission. He blessed that conquest. and that, We see that in Ezra chapter 1, that Cyrus the, Cyrus the Great does that. He sends Israel back to Jerusalem to be able to rebuild their temple and resume worship. Why is this important to the book of Esther? Because Esther happens under the rule of the Persians still. And Cyrus was a great leader for the Persian Empire because he was able to, because of his his background, his parents, one being Persian, one being Mede, he was able to kind of bring that group together and lead well. And then um, Darius was the next king, and the king after that was someone named Xerxes. That's his Greek name. Xerxes is the ruler at the time of Esther. And so he has this sort of lineage uh, where he has royalty on both sides. His father was Darius. His mother's father was Cyrus. So he's got this sort of super royal blood that, where he's got these rulers and he's sort of living in their shadow. And it's important to the context of the story because as we read about Xerxes, there's some stuff about him that, I, I mean, it just, you, you see as you're reading through, like he is leading out of a place of insecurity. He's leading out of a place where he's, not, he's looking over his shoulder and he is desperate to, to build a legacy for himself. And one thing that tends to be true as we watch people and we live out our own lives, when you're trying to force a legacy, that's when you really make a mess of things. And that's exactly what seems to be going on with him. So this is a fantastic book. Uh, It's a beautiful story, an amazing story, and it's a literary masterpiece, how it's written and told for us. So I'm excited to spend the next five weeks, Uh, we're going to get, get through a couple of chapters each week, which is a stretch. Uh, in the book of Esther. So we're going to try to, to do, our, uh, do this wonderful story justice. We're We're just going to be a lot of Bible. I'm not going to apologize for that part, though. Uh, a lot of Bible as we walk through this, uh, this wonderful book. Esther, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over the 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. So again, Xerxes, son of Darius, grandson of Cyrus the Great, Cyrus had conquered the Babylonians, allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. All this stuff is in the backdrop. And not all of the Israelites had returned to Jerusalem, though. And that's why we still have Israelites living in various provinces under Persian rule. Verse verse 2. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign... He gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, almost six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Usually when you read a line like that in the Bible, it's talking about God. The splendor and the glory of his his majesty. Usually, if we just pulled that little half line out of context and said, this is from the Bible. Who's it talking about? Most of us would guess it's talking about God because most of the time that type of language is reserved for speaking about God. In this case, it's an emperor really throwing this party to bring about those things about himself. He's building his own kingdom. And here's what we see is that being your own God tends to lead to insecurity, Being your own God leads to insecurity. Xerxes is very clearly his own God. In fact, I mean, he really claimed that, a a, a sense of deity um, about himself. And he's throwing this big party, this humongous party, a six-month party, with the purpose of glorifying himself. Now, there's some details we don't know, like were all of the officials there the whole time? Probably not, because then how would things get done? They probably came in in rotations, but it it was this massive, ongoing party to glorify himself. In fact, there there are some... um, extra-biblical histories that include some facts about um, King Xerxes. And here's one of the inscriptions that he would post around his kingdom about himself. He would, he would label himself the great king, the king of kings, the king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of this great world. That was his title for himself. A long, drawn-out title. It doesn't work too well at the bottom of emails uh, in your signature, but it worked for his purposes. He'd inscribe it and have it posted because he wanted everyone to know, I am the great king, the king of kings, the king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of this great world. That sounds like some description of God as well, doesn't it? Because that's how he's looking at himself. He was not shy about claiming himself as his own God. Now, it's more subtle, but a lot of times we set ourselves up in that, in that fashion as we walk through our lives. I said this a couple of times last week. I heard it recently. I thought it was really uh, a, a great way of looking at this. But sin is when I am in the center. It's when I am in the center. And a lot of times our sin is based on us putting ourselves first, us making ourselves our own God. In fact, if you go way back into the ver- to the very first sin that happens in Genesis, we see Satan comes along and he goes, God surely didn't say that. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And so that first sin was birthed from this little desire, this little whisper, this temptation to make themselves, Adam and Eve, to make themselves their own gods, that they would become their own god instead of uh, having to, to depend on somebody else on, to be their god. And that's, that's really one of the great temptations for us, is we want to be autonomous, we want to be independent, we want to rule our own lives, we want to be God for ourselves. But what we find is that when we do that, when we put ourselves out of position in our lives, when we seek for that control, when we grasp for that position, we make a mess of things because we really don't know what we're doing. So why was he throwing this massive party? He's trying to glorify himself. He's trying to lift himself up. Another... Thing that may have been going on in the background, just based on the history and trying to read between the lines just a little bit, is that he may have been trying to gain support because he was wanting to uh, send out a, a military campaign to capture Greece. That was his desire. He wanted to expand the kingdom. His father, his grandfather, they'd expanded the kingdom in some big ways, and he wanted to make a name for himself. So he's like, "I'm going to go take Greece. I'm going to take a strong. Uh, I'm going to take a strong area with many armies and all this stuff." And he, that's what he wanted to. That's what he wanted to do. Now, when we think about being our own God and we think about the insecurity of that, we are living in a world where people are being encouraged to become their own God. It's like we're, we're, we're secularizing our world, and, and that's bound to happen uh, at different times and places, and we've seen it, and that, does not, that should not pose a threat to us as followers of Christ because it's going to give us a platform to stand out. It's going to give us an opportunity to say, okay, now that the default is no longer a nominal Christian, there are a lot of people who are saying they were Christians who really didn't have that faith. Now we can really stand out in a culture that needs God and that's going to soon see their need for God. We can already see, how's this playing out? How's it going, life without God? Not very well. And one of the things that when we set ourselves up is God in our own lives, we basically, our identity now, um, is, it's all up to us to establish that. And it's up to us to, to carry out all of the tasks that God would normally be dependent on to carry out. Okay, so some of those things look like establishing your identity. Who am I? Well, now that comes just from self. There's nothing external that defines that. I get to decide everything about my identity, and it's not dependent on anyone or anything else. Okay? The significance. Well, why do things matter? Like, what is my significance? I have to decide that for myself. I have to name my purpose. I have to try to grasp for control because I feel like there's no one else that's going to do this for me. I have to do it for myself. I have to be my own God. But as we look, at, if we look at our world around us, teenage uh, depression and anxiety has never been this high. It's off the charts. It's unbelievable. And we have, we're creating, and because we're becoming our own God, we're creating a sense of self that is incredibly fragile. And that gets rocked by a lot of different things. Now, this is, this is not, I'm not trying to critique any, any individual, but this is what's going on in our culture, in our society. When we try to be our own God, it leads to some, t- some really rough things, and it leads to insecurity, ultimately, in the end. It's just simply not working. Beth Moore, who has a great study on Esther, by the way, if you're looking for something to come alongside this, or you ever want to do a deep dive on your own, she says, Our status is infinitely higher as a servant in God's kingdom, than a ruler in ours. those wise words. Our status is infinitely higher as a servant in God's kingdom than a ruler in ours. This is very true. Back to the text, verse 5. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden and the hangings of, uh, had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material on silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of, of porphyry, marble, mother-of-pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also had a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. That's all the information we get about that one. must have been a sensible party, I'm thinking. Uh, but he's throwing this seven-day, like right off the heels of this six-month party. He's like, hey, keep the stuff out, okay? We're going to keep the hot trays going. Uh, we're going to keep the goblets. We're going to do all the stuff, and we're going to do it up big. And this time, it's not going to be for the officials and nobles and the military rulers. This time, it's just going to be for the people of this province. And we're going to invite everybody in, whether they're high status or low status. So that's what he does. He brings them in. He, clearly, he's, he's desperate right now. He's desperate to be loved. I think of uh, the great Michael Scott who says, I don't have to be loved. I don't need to be. I, it's not like a, this compulsive need. I just, I just, it's not like my need to be praised. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, if you, if you know, you know. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, we, we have this need sometimes where we want to build ourselves up. And he's trying to satisfy that need in his own life. I, I don't know if you've ever been or seen pictures of the palace at Versailles outside of Paris. Uh, But this place is amazing. I've gotten to see it once. We had a family member living uh, overseas in Europe and was able to visit this beautiful place. And um, I was really impressed as I was walking through the palace and all this stuff. But you know what really got me? It was the gardens. It was just amazing. You walk around. I mean, this is just a piece of it. There's, there's. You can walk as far as the eye can see. There's gardens. You just walk and explore. You can ride bikes. There's a place you can rent a boat and go. I mean, all in the garden. It's like the, their backyard, and that's kind of how I imagine this party, this garden party that he has going on. It's just extravagant. Every goblet is a one of a kind golden goblet, and people. It's just, it's just excess. That's the picture uh, that, that's being painted here. It's just excess. To the nth degree, verse ten says, "On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen, Queen Vashti wearing her gold, her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger." It's interesting how this paragraph starts and ends. It starts with King Xerxes in high spirits from the wine. And it ends with him furious and burned with anger. This does sound like someone who's been drinking a lot of wine. It went from high spirits to furious in an in instant. And over, over a small request that, that, gets, that gets denied. Now, there's probably a lot at play here. First of all, he's not used to people telling him no. Uh, he's, he's the emperor after all. And, um, and he's also, he's in a spot where, um, you know, in, in a position in history where this was, was, this was a little bit surprising as well. But Vashti knew what was going on at this other party. And, I mean, you have to respect this decision on her part, knowing that that probably is going to lead to some negative consequences for her to say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. That's not, where I'm, that's not what I'm going to do next. I'm not going to show up to this seven-day drunk fest uh, because the king wants to show off my beauty to a bunch of intoxicated men. Like, it's just not where I'm gonna go. And uh, you have to respect that she was not willing to do that. But the response of the king just tells us a little bit more about him. And, and insecurity ultimately leads to vulnerability. Not the good kind, where you like are being vulnerable and sharing your stuff with other people and allowing people in. No, vulnerability is in weakness that is gonna take you down. Uh, type, the type of vulnerability that maybe you're not even aware of. And he was vulnerable to making terrible decisions as a result of this, he was vulnerable to just having his, this kingdom he's trying to build sort of fall apart in, in front of him. He was making himself vulnerable to these types of situations. When we do this, when we lead and we try to make ourselves our own God and then we become insecure and we try to maintain this, now we're, we're becoming vulnerable to making really poor decisions as we walk through our lives. He's clearly being portrayed here as insecure, and we see it in how he lashes out. So what he does next is that he asks his top advisors what the law says about this. What should I do with Vashti because she refused me? And one of them speaks up, one of his advisors in verse 16. It says, then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles. This is a, it's a good name. He's, it doesn't give great advice, but if you're looking for like a middle name for your kid, Memucan, I would just submit that. Um or maybe you're trying to, uh, to name like a, um, some kind of product that helps with a cold. I don't know, that might work too. Um, Queen Vashti, he says, has done wrong. Not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility have heard about the queen's conduct and will respond to the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of the disrespect and discord. I, it, sounds like, it sounds like Xerxes has surrounded himself with like-minded, uh, insecure leaders. This is what it sounds like to me. Um, it, it also sounds like maybe he's trying to play in to the fear he already sees in Xerxes, And he's just encouraging him along. Have you ever been like talking with someone and they're like, oh, and you wouldn't believe what happened next. They said this and that. And and the the sort of unspoken uh, social cue is for you to go, yeah, oh, ridiculous, you know, and just go along with it. Like it happens all the time. Like I can't believe they, they said that. Really? And like you're just supposed to go with them all the way. And sometimes it's not going to the right spot. And they're calling you as an advisor. Really what they want is a yes person. They just want someone confirming what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they are planning to do next. They just want someone to come along with them on that journey. But we need to be really, really careful uh, when we give advice and when we receive advice. We need to be careful what kind of advice we give, what kind of things we affirm, what kind of things we're willing to say not along and say yes to, and when we're going to say, well, have you considered another perspective? And when we uh, are seeking advice, we need to make sure that we're not doing that, just putting pressure on someone, just confirm and affirm everything that we're saying and assuming and thinking and feeling. But someone who will be willing to lovingly challenge us sometimes when our perspective is different, because we need that from time to time. That advisor role is an important role. And who you invite into your life to be an advisor, that should be something you're wise and careful with. And when you're invited to be someone else's advisor, to not take it lightly as well. So this advisor should have helped him see his insecurity and call it out and and respond differently. But instead, he just rides that emotional wave with him. And here's what he proposes as a result of the fears he just stoked. uh, He proposes this solution. Therefore, if it pleases the king... Let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. That's an important feature of the story, by the way. The, the laws cannot be repealed. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. It makes me think, better in what in what way? I think we're going to find out. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with his advice, so they did as Mimukin uh, proposed. He sent dispatches to parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his household using his native tongue. And so, this is just a bizarro story, right? At this point, it's like there's so much that's ironic about this that they don't see. Now, an interesting fact: a Greek historian. Um, they, they, t- they tell us that uh, when they were making decisions, and we don't, this is not completely confirmed because it's just the Greek side and they had, they had some disagreements, um, but they said they would make, Persians would make decisions while intoxicated. And then the next day, they'd wake up and hear them read back, here's what you resolved yesterday, let's read back the minutes. And if they said, yeah, still sounds good, then they'd go ahead and do it or if they happened to be sober when they were talking about major details, they would confirm them while drunk. So this was the type of culture that that they were living in, apparently. And so, honestly, not a stretch, right? You read this, they're like missing all of this irony. They're like, you know what? What should be done to this queen who didn't want to appear in your presence? You know what? Banish her permanently from your presence. Vashti's like, yes, hallelujah. Now, we don't know. She may have actually been put to death, which wouldn't, wouldn't be such a hallelujah moment for her. Um, but that's what it says here in the text is that with it, it could be a subtext that she was put to death. But in the, in the text itself, it says that she was banished from his presence permanently. So we don't know. We don't know what happened there. But there's some irony there that part of her penalty is that she'll never appear before the king again. She's like, thank goodness. Um, and then, and then just the, this idea that like this king, this emperor who's ruling over this vast kingdom, like the one thing he feels he can't control is his own household. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to issue this decree, decreeing, me decreeing that you all you men are rulers of your own household, but I can't control mine. It's like, you can't write this stuff. He is deluded and he is, he's not seeing reality for what it is. And, and by the way, this is in no way a, a picture of what biblical marriage is supposed to look like at all it's about sacrificial love and mutual submission shown towards one another yes uh, wives are are commanded to respect their husbands and husbands to love their wives but this in the context of a mutually submissive relationship where there's deference one to the other to put the other's needs ahead of their own that's it's that's what a christ-like marriage looks like not like this where the husband is commanded to be ruler of the home and if the wife doesn't listen then there's there's consequences for that that's not how that works and so, what we see is uh, just an, a, a situation just dripping with with irony. Herodotus is that Greek historian where we get a ton of that information uh, about about Persian culture and some of the, and, and corroboration of a lot of these facts that are going on in this story. Esther chapter two verse one begins with later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Now, the text in its original language is actually a little bit, um, a little bit more passive in the voice there. It actually says, in and what, in what had been decreed. He, he basically, it, as it writes it, it takes away the king's uh, act, activity in that. It sort of implies that he's blaming other people for what happened. And then the other thing that's going on in that text, when it says that he remembered, a lot of times that, that word for remembered also implies sort of like a sad, like a, a regret, and so there's, there's a pretty good chance now that he's like, you remember all those decisions when I made after that seven-day bender? Yeah, I regret that. Pretty common thing. <laughs> That's a pretty common result um, when, when that type of thing happens in life. And, and the, the, the later is, is actually not like a week or two. It's actually like a couple of years later. And so what's gone on in between, and we, we know this, bec- again, because of Herodotus, and we know this because of history outside of the Bible, that this is when the Persians... Uh, began the Persian war with the Greeks. This is when he tried to take over Greece and add that to his kingdom. Have you heard of the movie Spartan, the 300 movie about the Spartans and the battle uh, where they resisted the Persian empire, the Persian army with just 300? That's this. It's based loosely on real facts of history. And so that's what's going on here. Xerxes is trying to expand his kingdom. He goes out to war. He loses in fantastic fashion Probably incredibly humiliating and embarrassing because, I mean, it's a pretty good chance he's doing all of these parties and he's trying to make this name for himself and he's staking his legacy on this takeover and it just completely falls flat. And so it, it looks like probably two to three years later, he's dealing with this regret and probably blaming his advisors and all of this stuff and get wriggling himself off the hook. Insecurity leads to poor decision making, leads, leads to regret ultimately is what it, when we make our decisions uh, out of a place of insecurity. Verse 2, back to the story. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let beauty treatments be given to them. Then the young woman who pleases the king will be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now it's interesting because this advice came from his personal attendants. The advice that he followed before came from like the, the experts, the people who were he, were considered wise that he surrounded himself as advisors. These were personal attendants. These were like the people behind the scenes, and so he takes advice. He's taking all sorts of advice from terrible sources. He's taking all sorts of, and he just he just Im- implements it like. So far, we've we've seen him just take on advice and without adding anything to it and just implementing it because he's an insecure and weak leader. And so as he's, as he's doing this, he's not really uh, thinking critically about it because a lot of times, and as they're afraid of this emperor, you know, as they approach, they're doing, they're giving him these plans that boost his ego and try to repair his wounded ego in these situations. And he's like, Yep, sounds good. You're saying Make me the center again? Sure, let's do it. And he's just rolling one mistake after another as, as he uh, makes these decisions throughout his, his life and his rule. So there's just there's no ability uh, for the people that he's recruiting, for these young women, to turn this down. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no agency in this. This is a different time and a different place. There's no like, hey, uh, sign the waiver, and we're going to bring you over to the palace for these beauty treatments. And th- it's not like that. They're rounded up, they're gathered up, and there's no choice. And the end result of this is is actually pretty sad. I mean, this is this is not this is not really your uh, classic. I mean, in a lot of ways, this story does read like a Disney story. Even even as we'll see in a minute, even the the fact that one of our main characters, Esther, her parents have passed away. Every Disney story. Why? I don't know, but. That's what's going on here is that they're being forced. It's not like this happy, oh, I could be a queen or a princess. It's like, no, this is, this is pretty bleak because what's going to happen is 90%, 99% of them uh, are going to end up discarded and just left in the harem, as, um, but they can't go out and live like a normal life, right? They, now the king has taken their virginity and they cannot have a normal family. They will live the rest of their days lonely and ignored in the harem. That's, that's, the, that's their future. And in this kingdom, I mean, all of the people were treated this way by the emperor who fancied himself to be a god. Um, because he, he, it wasn't just for women. They, they were, it's estimated about 500 boys were annually castrated for service in the court it, throughout, the, throughout the empire. Again, no agency, no decision making, no sign on the line, no agreement. It's just what was happening. People were being used for the king's pleasure however he wished. Insecurity leads to exploiting others. Insecurity leads to exploiting others. Verse 5 says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew in the, of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah who had been brought up who he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So again, some of the Jewish people went back to Jerusalem under Cyrus, but not all and this gives some of that history where Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken over Jerusalem and, and brought those people into his empire, and so now this is the empire inherited from Babylon, and that's why these Jewish people are still here. Mordecai and Esther are still in, the, uh, in that place. Verse 8, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her, be- with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants to the best place in the harem. So she is in this pretty bleak situation, but God is helping her to make the best of it. For some reason, she won the favor of this eunuch. And so this is different than how you know what the beauty contest is really ultimately going to do, where you win your favor from the king by your physical beauty and whatnot. This, because this is a eunuch, he doesn't care what she looks like. She wins his favor some other way. So we can, we can uh, surmise here, and as we see the story, as we see everything play out, we know there's a little bit more to Esther than just what meets the eye. She was described as beautiful, but she had, she had something going on uh, that was beyond that as well. She was smart. She had people skills. She, she was an impressive person, because later in verse 15, it's going to say that she won everyone's favor. Not only that, but we also have to conclude, as we see throughout the Old Testament, a lot of times... God's hand is on those who are winning favor throughout the course of history. We think of Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. He continues to have bad things happen to him. But anywhere he lands, whether it's in a ruler's household or in prison or under Pharaoh, he wins their favor. So even though in the midst of bad situation, he continues to win favor with people because God is with him. So we don't know exactly what happened, exactly what characteristics won the favor of this eunuch, but she was continually winning everyone's favor. Verse 10 says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had, forbid, had forbidden her to do so. So every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So why not? Why had she not revealed her background? We don't know exactly why, uh, but we can fill in the gaps with some, with some uh, details and some hy- hypotheses. We have to be careful not to hold them too tightly because we ultimately don't know the exact reason. But it seems like Mordecai, based on where we continually find him and what we're about to see that's going to take place in the story, he may have been one of the gatekeepers at the palace. That may have been his job. He was actually an official government employee uh, at the gate, and that's where he spent his time. And so maybe because he was a government employee, he just wanted to s- disguise his background. Again, it's not that, that the background, there was known that there were many backgrounds in the kingdom. But the other thing is, Esther being without parents, um, this idea of, of like what w- would make a great queen usually had some strategy politically. And to not only have maybe poor parents, uh, or not come from nobility—that's one thing. That's that's a you know that's a compromise in and of itself. But to have none at all, be raised by a, an uncle—maybe that was that was something that could have been frowned upon. Maybe that's part of the reason. Um, we, at the end of the day, we just don't know. Now, we have their names. Uh, we're given a couple of names for Esther, Hadassah, and Esther. Uh, a lot of times, you'd have a different name that matched more with your culture. You think of Daniel going into exile. He also, he, he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were their non-Jewish names. Um, and so we have, we have these different names that people are called. So Mordecai is how we know him. Um, and, but he, he's maybe trying to hide that Jewish background because of his position. Um, here's the reality. These heroes in the story, Mordecai and Esther, they're going to become our heroes. They're very imperfect heroes. And that's true of every hero in every story ever written besides the one about Jesus. The, the, our, our heroes are imperfect. And here's the deal. God still uses them. God still uses them. God can use us in spite of ourselves. That's a reality, that's a beautiful reality. God can use us in spite of ourselves. In fact, last time we talked about Esther briefly uh, was in the midst of a series that we called Yes, You. Because the idea was, yes, God can use you. No one knows your flaws like you do. Except for maybe someone who lives in your house. Uh, Other than that, you're, you're the expert. And uh, as we go through life, we, sometimes we focus on our flaws and we say why we're disqualified and why it's not going to work and why God can't use me and why I can't share my faith with a neighbor and why he can't accomplish big things because I'm me. And these stories, I think, are always inspiring and, and relatable because when we see someone, we, we, we see Mordecai here hiding his background. We don't know why, but it's probably not pure motives. It's probably not what God would have had him do he's keeping it a secret. In other words, he's not standing out among a foreign people in any way as a follower of God or a worshiper of God. So it means he's probably made a bunch of compromises in his life. We don't see them following uh, Jewish, Jewish tradition, Jewish laws. We don't see them putting up a fight against her being wed to, um, through a, to a non-Jewish person as they were forbidden to do. So there's, there's some imperfections here. There are some problems in the story with our heroes, but that's true throughout the Bible. Even when we think of David as probably one of the great heroes in, in the pages of the Bible, and he had a very, a very question, he had several very questionable events, and uh, was far, far, far from a perfect person. But instead of, of, of being cancelled, um, he was redeemed and lifted back up. God still uses us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our flaws, in spite of the mistakes that we make verse 12 says before a young woman uh, woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women six months of oil and myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics and this is how she would go to the king anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace in the evening she would go there in the morning return with another part to another part of the harem and she would be put in, in the charge of another king's eunuch Shazgaz who was in charge of the concubines. That's another good name, if you're looking. In fact, just put those two together. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So this is pretty ridiculous preparations for those who had already won the beauty contest, isn't it? Like, it's unbelievable, and it really does remind me of our culture today. It's like, it's just never enough. And I, I'm, I'm a dad of three girls, and in addition to my son, and it's like, this is a tough world to raise kids you know, and, but this has been going on for, for obviously for centuries, and we need to just be aware of that, that like, you know what, if you're going to let the world define you, especially if you're a young woman here, um, if you're going to let the world define you by externals, like it's just, it's a no-win situation, it's just, it's never going to be enough, God has made you the way that you were designed to be, and, and that's it, love yourself, let people love you for who you are, And uh, don't let yeah, thank you. (laughs) Hey, that's the first time I think I've gotten applause here in a message. So uh, but but in in all reality, it's like you just put yourself in this situation. Esther's a young, probably a teenager, and going through all this, and it's like just such a backwards world that we live in, where we define ourselves and define other people by purely by externals and then the pressure and then just what it does psychologically. We were talking about the fragile selves uh, earlier. It's like, man, we we just need truth from God. We just need his affirmation. We need to know how he created us and how he loves us and how he feels about us and get our value from him and just try to ignore all the other junk. It's not easy, but that's what we need to try to do in our lives. So in verse 15, when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And it says this, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the residence, royal residence in the tenth month month of, month of Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign. So th- that's why we know it's been a long time that's passed. It was the third year of his reign when all the parties were happening and Vashti was deposed. Now we're in the seventh year. So it's been four years. There's been a year of beauty treatments. We don't know how long the whole uh, you know, Miss Persia pageant took to, in order to select the finalists. So this is where we are. We're, we're four years later. At the end, he chooses her, um, in, in favors her, and the king gave a great banquet, which he called Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. It seems like he learned something from his prior marriage that you know when you throw this banquet and you call it your banquet, and it's for your glory and splendor, and you invite the queen, she's not going to come. So you got to name it after the queen, you know, lift her up, give her some celebration. Um, and so he's learning slowly but surely um, because he's not a smart guy. Uh, but this 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 time. We see, this is the third time we see someone take advice. This time it's Esther who takes advice. She takes advice of the eunuch, and it turns out to be apparently good advice because of all the fates that you could face as a result of this whole thing, that's probably the position you want to end up being in. not completely ignored and forgotten about uh, in, as a, just one random person in the harem, but, but being the actual queen, being in a position there. So she took this advice, and um, so not only is it the third time someone takes advice, but this is our fourth party, if you're counting. As you work through the book of Esther, you're just going to see a bunch of parties, small and large. Uh, this is, I don't know, this is pretty big. This is a pretty big party. Um, so we've got, we had the two parties, the six-month party, the seven-day party, Vashti's party, and now Esther's party. So we've had four parties so far. All right, this is our last portion of the scripture that we're going to read. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, gate. Big Thana, man, we are just filled with great baby name ideas. Um, and Teresh, I know there's some people who are, gonna, who are expecting soon here in our church. Um, it's one of the ways that we're growing, um, and we're excited for that. And I'm just going to write all these names down and hand them to those parents. Uh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry. They aspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported the king giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Ouch. All this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. So everything works the right way here in terms of the process when the thing gets reported, the the, uh, perpetrators get put to death. All of that stuff is happening. What, What doesn't happen here is another piece that traditionally would have happened that the person who uncovered it and protected the king would get honored and lifted up. And this, this somehow gets forgotten. Now in this, I mean, we've seen so much lavish stuff happening. That's what you would expect for the person who, who did this. And somehow the king, there's an oversight. The king forgets about that and Mordecai just continues on doing his thing. But here's what we need to understand because this is going to circle back. This part of the story is incredibly important to store away for later. The fact that Mordecai exposes, he's the one to expose this conspiracy to take the king's life. It's incredibly important. And here's why it's important, because it reveals to us that God is always at work behind the scenes. God is always at work behind the scenes. Even when we can't see him, he's doing stuff behind the scenes. So this book, one thing that's super interesting about this book that I haven't mentioned so far, I don't think, is that it does not say the name of God a single time. It's one of the things that makes Esther a very unique story. Probably the main thing that makes it a unique story among the Bible. But there's a lot of other features as well. But it doesn't, feature, it doesn't mention God's name a single time. And yet, as you read the book, if you read it from start to finish, which you, you can do in one sitting, it's, it's really not uh, terribly long. And it reads. It's a page turner. Uh, it, it, and it, it, it's, it's the reality that as you get done with it, you realize God was all over it. Even if his name is not mentioned, his activity is Constant. And this is one of those times where we see that God is always at work behind the scenes. And the thing I love about that, we're going to come back to this theme, by the way, because it's one of the big themes of the book. One of the things I love about that as it relates to our our passage today is that it reads kind of like real life in that regard. Because as we go through our lives day by day, like stuff happens that we're not really sure about, we don't know how to explain, and we're like, where's God? Where's God at work in this situation? And sometimes it's hard to see him because his name's not mentioned, it's not like they're skywriting. It's like, that was me, you know, or I'm still moving. Like, you know, you're just wondering, how is this story going to end? I don't know where this is going. And yet he's still at work behind the scenes. And someday when you look back and you read your story from start to finish, you're going to be like, ah, oh, oh, I see. There, there he is, even in the situations that just don't look so good. Again, it's a literary masterpiece. It's a beautiful story, but we see God's thumbprints all over it, even when we don't see his name a single time. This message, uh, I just want to mention that I call this message Insecure Leaders, Imperfect Heroes, and Invisible Providence. Because that's what we're seeing here in these first couple of chapters. We're seeing leaders making terrible decisions out of insecurity. We're seeing heroes that are going to emerge that are imperfect, that are not making all of the right decisions either, even though their character is more noble than some of the leaders. And then we're also seeing invisible providence, God at work behind the scenes, even when we don't know what's happening. As we approach our lives, let's take the warnings from some of the characters, let's take the positive examples, and let's remember that God is at work even when we don't see him. I'm excited to continue on in this series as we dive into the book of Esther. Let's pray, and we're going to respond to God in worship. Lord, we thank you that you never do leave us alone. That when we reach out for you, you are there to be found. God, I thank you that even in the moments where we're not sure how the story is going to end, you have it written. Lord, you nothing surprises you. And you're at work even now in all of our circumstances. I think of the many stories that are unfolding in the lives of the people in this room. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. That we could see your hand moving. That we would see your name written in our story. But even when we don't, God, ultimately that we would trust you because we know that you're working. That your providence is moving behind the scenes. God, we thank you again. We worship you. Praise you for your word. We praise you that you want to be known and to know us personally. Pray all this in Jesus' name.